latest episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. We're not first on the block here. So we're the followers. We're not the leaders. We're not being proactive. We're being reactive. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome to our 22nd episode in season one for the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and today we speak with Dr. Carolyn Bradley-Gidry about UT Southwestern University, about the doctoral degree for the PA profession, and about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Dr. Bradley-Gidry is the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Affairs for the School of Health Professions at the UT Southwestern Medical Center, and she is an Associate Professor in the Department of PA Studies. She is a national and regional leader in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and has vast experiences as a nurse, a PA, and an educator that contributes to her perspective in both healthcare and higher education. As always, you may learn more about our guest and their institution at our PAPathPodcast.com website under the blog section and show notes. We also include a transcript of our discussion for those who prefer to read. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while since you and I committed to do this. And uh, I think our audience is going to be very excited to hear your path to becoming a PA. And I hope that through the conversation, we'll also chat a little bit about your path to becoming a national leader with diversity, equity, and inclusion. But let's start with your path to becoming a PA. How did you decide to become a PA? Kevin, I started out as a registered nurse, and I was working side by side with an amazing physician. And he and I worked in the clinic together. Uh, He was a nephrologist and he was an educator in the medical school. And he actually trained me to take a medical history and do a physical exam the exact same way he trained his residents. And after working with him for several years, he was like, Carolyn, you really need to go to medical school. And I was like, no, I don't want to be a physician. I don't want the life that you have. I want a little bit more personal life with my family, but also want to have the privilege and opportunity to care for patients at a higher level than nursing. And actually had an opportunity to meet a couple of PAs by working with him and decided that I wanted to apply to PA school and that was my path. But as an undergraduate student, I knew nothing about the profession, but it was being in healthcare where I got the exposure to the profession and I just and I decided to take that path. So as a nurse, did you have the opportunity to work with PAs? As a nurse, I worked with two PAs and had a good relationship with both of them and was really inquisitive about what it was that they were doing. And as I continued to work with them along with the physician that I was working with, I had an opportunity to actually partner with them on a couple of special projects because I was doing some research with the provider at the time. And I just saw the broad range and the scope of practice that they were able to do. And I thought that this is something that I could really learn how to do and be good at it. So were you practicing as a nurse in Texas? Yes, uh, I have always worked in underserved communities. So I was actually working at our medical centers associated with our county hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, when I was in nursing, I worked for our county hospital. And then um, 
transferred over, still taking care of the same uh, patient population, but actually in a different role from direct patient care to a research role when I was working with um, the physician that I made reference to previously. But as a nurse, I've always worked with underserved populations. It's been a passion of mine. And this is going to sound like I'm totally, totally uh, trying to charm you. But honestly, I'm sure as an educator, you've had the same experience. Uh, uh, the nurses that have been in our schools that I've been part of just offer such a great depth of experience before they come to PA school. I've never had uh, anything but an outstanding experience with former nurses who become PA. So I hope I hope there are nurses listening who say, that's great. We should do this We because we need more nurses in the PA profession. I completely agree. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> so, okay, so you have uh, you have a bachelor's degree in nursing, and then you got a bachelor's degree in PA, and also a master's degree in PA. Is that right? That is correct. So I, I'm going to make an assumption that you became a PA at a time when bachelor's was kind of the norm. Right. It was the norm. It was not a master's degree at the time. And after, like I said, I was a nurse for 10 years and then obtained my second bachelor's degree as a PA. But new as a PA, I kind of felt like I wanted to go the education route because in my PA class, in my nursing class, I was only um, one of three minorities. That was a that was the same uh, in my PA class. I was only, there was only three African-Americans in my PA class. And I just felt like that this is a profession that more minorities should know about. And having always worked in underserved communities and in my community service work have always given back to communities and mentored young people. I just had the bug that I wanted to eventually get in education. So I knew I was gonna have to have a master's degree to do that. And so that was really my driving motivation for getting my master's degree so that I could one day go into education and with a focus on trying to encourage other individuals that look like me to, educate them about the field and try to get them to pursue a career as a physician assistant. And, and as you think back to not only the time that you experienced this for your, for your own journey, but also the number of students that you've probably counseled over the years to try to encourage them to think about the PA profession, what do you think are the main barriers to students from minority communities when they look at our profession and they kind of maybe discount it for something else? I think it's a lack of representation, number one. Uh, And I also think it's a lack of knowledge, but once they are aware of the profession, I think it's a lack of representation. And I said this at a PAEA conference once, students can't be what they can't, what they don't see. Mm -hmm. And when they don't see themselves in a certain profession or a certain career, then they don't see themselves being able to align with that particular profession. You see uh, minority representation in education. You see it in on the police force. You see it in firefighters. You see it in various different other professions, but you don't necessarily see it when it comes to physician assistants. I mean, our profession is over 86% white. So when you look at that other 14%, that is broken down between African-American, Hispanic, uh, Asian, 
Native American Indian that that consumes that other 14%. And so when you disperse that broadly across the region and across uh, U.S. Census divisions, the likelihood that there is going to be an African-American PA in every community is extremely, extremely small. So students at the undergraduate level don't have the exposure and so they don't see themselves in these particular roles. So representation is actually, is absolutely critical in my opinion. So we're kind of in this wicked catch-22. We don't have enough representation in the profession, in education, on admissions committees, et cetera. And so we can't get more because we don't have people representing those communities. And yet we have to kind of break over that barrier by trying to get a larger number of underrepresented minority students into the profession so that that problem would go away. Absolutely. If we don't have more students, we can't have more faculty and we're not going to have more individuals in the workplace. So it has to start with our admissions committees. Our admissions committees really and truly is the pathway to uh, diversifying our profession. And for our admissions committees, they have to be intentional about their efforts and they cannot expect for students to show up at their front door. They cannot expect for students to just see their website and knock on the door to get in. They have to be intentional in their efforts to go out into diverse communities to educate students about the profession and then be able to assist students in navigating the process as far as having competitive applications. You just can't show up at a at an undergraduate recruitment fair and say this is our program without actually creating a pathway of you need to have some volunteer hours, you need to have strong reference letters and just being able to paint the picture of what it takes to get into the program is a whole different step that takes intentionality. So when you look at a program and you think about it through the lens of that problem that we're having in terms of really having representation from all communities, having not only diversity, but having equity, having inclusion. Um, What does an authentic program look like to you? An authentic program to me looks like representation from diverse backgrounds, gender representation, representation across sexuality, representation across generations, You're going to have some uh, younger faculty. You're going to have some more seasoned faculty. And then you have individuals that actually do not mind going into communities and do not mind. They actually thrive on reaching out and having a diverse classroom seated within each and every one of their cohorts. And so that that involves not only the admissions process, but also checking your implicit bias. It involves the way you market your program, the way your hiring retention is related to your faculty and staff. It's really Absolutely. it's everything, right? It's everything. And it, it doesn't just stop. It does not stop with the admissions committee because programs that bring in diverse candidates. Without having a established culture will only increase attrition rates so that it's holistic from 
the way that we bring students in and the environment that we create for them to thrive in. We don't want our students to just come in and then have to survive in our programs. We want our students to come in and to thrive in our programs. So that means that there needs to be an inclusive culture. Uh, that means that the curriculum needs to reflect inclusion. That means the uh, our learning objectives, how we teach our students need to reflect inclusion. Um, we need to be creating an atmosphere so that all students within the classroom regardless of their race and ethnicity, can be their authentic selves within the classroom. And so that really and truly takes intentional efforts from the leadership of the program to have training sessions for their faculty so that their faculty can embrace one another and then have the resources to embrace the students. Yeah. I was reminded by many of our students uh, this year, We I had a, a meeting with some of our students related to their experience thus far, particularly with COVID, we're trying to, to make sure that everybody is feeling safe and heard. And, and after we got through the COVID part of that conversation, they felt the courage to, to call me on the program's uh, challenges. You know, it's always nice to, as a director to hear how happy everybody is. But in this instance, they were happy about many things, but they felt comfortable enough to share a, a significant concern. And this was from a multicultural group. The images that we use in teaching and conveying information need to reflect all of the communities that we're talking about, because if people don't see themselves in the images, then they feel excluded and it's not an inclusive environment. And the fact is, we have a global healthcare arena to care for patients from all walks of life from all over the world these days. But if the images only reflect white patients, Correct. We're, we're missing out on an opportunity to prepare our students to be successful. Correct. I completely agree with that. I mean, we need to include images. We should be talking about social determinants of health. It should be embedded across our curriculum um, so that we can make sure that we are understanding the lives that our patients live so that we can train the, our students to be able to identify risk factors for social determinants of health and refer them to the appropriate resources as patients um, when they're caring for those patients. And that way, we PA profession can really and truly be a catalyst for addressing social determinants of health. But it all circles back to that inclusive climate and having our students comfortable learning about these things. We can't expect to train graduates and then once they graduate and they're certified, they're able to do this. We have to give our students the skill set. And that's all part of the diversity, equity, inclusion. That should be a baseline part of all of our programs. Kind of threaded through everything. Threaded through everything from the, on the didactic side as well as on the clinical side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's uh, talk a little bit more about your current education because you have really taken off in the educational realm. You are a distinguished teacher for UT Southwestern. You've received many awards. Um, you were appointed as the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Affairs. And so you've you really not only been a, a PA educator, but you've found a niche to really grow your passion for this work. And can you help us understand how that started and how you ended up where you're at today? Well, I guess um, it really started because um, I was just passionate about making a difference in the community 
that I live in. I was passionate about making a difference in the individuals around me as a young individual, as a nurse. And I've just never left that passion. That that has been my driving force. You know, people talk about grit and having grit to be successful and coming from a background where my parents have high school education. It was not easy for me to even get my nursing degree. And I got that degree with the emphasis in the importance of trying to make a difference in communities that was less off and less fortunate. And that has been my drive for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Trying to make a difference in students' lives that are just like me, who may come from backgrounds, who parents didn't go to school. How do we create and afford an opportunity for these individuals? How do we help these individuals? And that has been my driving force. And I've just taken that passion and from my own individual passion and move that into education and move that into the classroom. And then it's just, I've just evolved and created scholarly work around this particular area. And it has really been my, it hadn't changed. It's been my baseline drive to create equity and inclusion for all individuals, not to leave anyone out. Uh, I have great people from all different races, all different religions in my uh, in my inner circle that I'm really close to. And I've really thrived on sharing information and trying to open their eyes to help them understand the importance of equity. As a society, as a country, we thrive when we work together and when we can collaborate together. We're better off when we can work together. And so I've just, I've taken that passion into the PA program, the dean recognized it. I actually reached over to share some ideas that we had incorporated in the PA program with other programs within the School of Health Professions. I had a conversation with our dean about it. And it's just, you know, he saw the changes that occurred in the PA program and asked me if I could help make some of those same changes in the school as a whole. And so much of success in life is is identifying mentors. And I wonder, given given your parents' history, you know, you didn't have a, a parental role model to get to college. You, I'm sure, had parents that were very adamant about you going to college. But how, how did you as a, a student in high school navigate to college for nursing and then, you know, so on and so forth? How do you identify mentors? How do you uh, build trust with them? What, what's your kind of secret sauce? So Kevin, let me start by talking about parents who didn't have a college education um, and how I ended up in college. Um, I, my, of course, my parents wanted me to go to college, but I started off at the community college level, uh, not having the resources and not knowing how to navigate at the collegiate level. So when I graduated from high school, I went to community college first. And after having 30 hours of community college and doing well at the community college level, being on the list at the community college level, I then transferred into a four-year university. And I did this, I transferred into a four-year university, got to the uh, university, had four classes. At midterm, I was failing off, I was failing three of the four classes. I was working hard, had a lot of grit, had a lot of drive, did not have the appropriate strategy. I was reading all of the chapters in the book, 
I was highlighting every word. I was rewriting all of my notes. Um, and I thought that that was going to help me to be successful. But at midterm, I was failing everything except for one course. And I, I could not figure out what was going on. I'm like, I'm reading, I'm taking notes, what's happening? And I ended up being determined to do so. My father, you know, back then, this was in the mid 80s. Your parents got your grades before you did. There was no FERPA. You had no control <laughs> over your coursework, right? Yeah. And so my dad, my dad called me up and was like, okay, what's going on? We can't afford for you to be in college. And if you're not going to do well, you need to come back home and go to community college because you was doing well at the community college level. And I was like, no, that's not what I want to do. So I ended up seeking out resources from the Student Resource Center to, de to develop strategies and end up meeting with the individual once a week, taught me how to take notes, taught me how to analyze test questions, taught me how to actually answer the question that was being asked for essay questions and how to break down a STEM in a multiple choice questions and identify those distractors. And uh, once I learned those strategies, Kevin, I soared. I graduated that semester. I said I was failing all courses at midterm except for one. That semester, I ended up passing everything. I only ended up having one D. And that D reminds me to never do this again. And I share that with all of the students that I mentor. I have one D. And I that D reminds me, never do this again. Seek help early yeah. if you're not doing well and ended up finishing college in three years instead of four wow. once I figured it out I turned it on Kevin and I just let it roll and so my message to young students and I mentored so many young students is sometimes you don't know what you don't know but when you figure out that you're not on the right path there's nothing wrong with getting help and getting the resources that you need to be successful. And I share with undergraduate students all the time, you pay tuition and fees. Those fees are for support services that oftentimes students don't seek out because either they're embarrassed to or they're ashamed of doing it or they don't want to admit that they need help. Utilize the resources that you need to help get you to be successful. Because it's not just grit. You can work hard. Because I was working really hard, mm -hmm. but I was not, I still wasn't successful. So you have to have that passion. I had that passion to say, you have to figure out what it is you need to do. So I applied that grit to my passion and I was able to be successful with the appropriate resources. It's like quicksand. The harder you work, the the, the deeper you fall. Absolutely. Sometimes. Absolutely. So you, you've got to, the only way to get out of it is to get somebody to, to give you a hand. And so that goes to the mentor piece, the second part of your question. Once I got to, uh, I did well in nursing, and once I got in PA school, there was an assistant dean that was an African-American female. She looked like me, Kevin. Mm -hmm. The first day of school in the PA program, I was amazed to see someone that looked like me. We are still friends to this very day. That's awesome. <laughs> And that was 1996. And she is still one of my mentors right now. I went to her. I was like, how did you get here? What did you do? And just started asking questions, right? And to see someone at a higher education level that looked like me for the first time was just, I was, I was 
drawn to her and but I have a lot of I have a lot of mentors but she was my first and she is she and I are still really close friends to this very day and I go back to the I just can't put enough emphasis on representation it's really important. I have male mentors. I have had white mentors. So all of my mentors do not look like me, but to have someone, to see someone that look like you was a driving force for me. If she can do this, I can too. So there's, there's a little bit of a safety component to that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a safety component. And in addition to a safety component, there is, wow, uh, it gives you somebody to not only seek out as a mentor, but it's a reassurance that all academic leaders does, does not have to be white male or white females. There's a real true reality checkpoint to that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, we all struggle with imposter syndrome, but I think mm-hmm. it's the literature is very clear that students from underrepresented communities struggle with it even more because of this exact issue, right? There aren't enough role models that have reached these quote unquote pinnacle positions to show that anything is possible. So do you, do you find when you're working with mentors who look like you that you can let your guard down and, and be more authentic as compared to maybe mentors who don't come from your community? Um, as a professional, as a student, I would say, yes, that was true. Okay. But as a, as a professional and as a seasoned professional, that is not as, as so much, uh, of an issue for me anymore because, uh, I, my previous program director was a white male. And so I have two relationships with him. I was a student. Mm-hmm. In his class, he taught me. So, and then I was, uh, he was my supervisor as a faculty member. And so as a student, I would say, I did not see him as someone that I could relate to as a mentor because I had him on his hierarchy as a faculty member, sure. as a program director and chair. So yes, that was absolutely true. I didn't, I didn't think that I could ever be able to relate to him as a faculty member. Um, he was one of the most amazing mentors I've ever had. Um, he was easy to communicate with, but you, you, as key, as students, you have this hierarchy that you don't think you can actually cross. Right. Um, so being able to see someone of color helps lower that threshold and, and close the gap on those feelings. But as a faculty member, I was, I was able to relate to him and, you know, he would invite me into his office and say, tell me what your goals are. Tell me where you want to be. Tell me what you want to do. And I want to help you get there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That, we're talking about Gene Jones. We're talking about Gene Jones for sure. We're talking about Professor Emeritus, Dr. Eugene yeah. Jones. He's um, a special guy. A special guy. Amazing pioneer. I owe so much to of my professional career to Dr. Jones. He was a phenomenal faculty member as a student. But Dr. Jones got it as a student. I saw him create that inclusive climate for students. As a student, I felt safe in his classroom. As a student, I felt safe learning from him. And um, he was absolutely phenomenal. And then I also want to mention Michael Statler. 
Michael Stadler is the current president of the Physician Assistant Education Association. She was one of my faculty members as well, and also did a phenomenal job creating that safe space for students to learn in. And those two individuals really and truly inspired me to want to be a PA educator. And you know, my leadership in the PA profession actually started on the mentorship of Dr. Jones. Without his mentorship, I don't think I would have been where I am today. Um, he saw something in me and cultivated that. And, you know, he understood diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when he hired me, he said, as a white male, I want you to help me change the trajectory of this school. He said, I know how important it is for us to have a diverse school. And I remember Dr. Jones having this conversation with me. He said, I don't think people think I'm serious because I'm a white male. I want you to partner with me to help UT Southwestern become the place where all students feel like that they're welcome. And so I was like, all right, you have the right person. Let's make this happen. And we partnered together. He and I wrote the vision for our uh, PA program, which we never had a vision. And before he exited the program, he said, you know, I think we need a vision statement of what we want this program to look like or what we want this program to do. And so he and I collaborated in writing our vision statement. And he's just done so much for the profession as a whole, but I, I really feel like I owe so much to him for my professional career in leadership within the PA profession. Um, let's talk about UT Southwestern Medical Center and the PA school and kind of what, what's the school about? How do applicants uh, get a chance to understand more about how to be successful getting into your school? Okay, so about UT Southwestern, how does um, candidates find out about our school? Our website is informative. We have information sessions, both they're virtually right now, but uh, once we come out of COVID, we'll be doing those in person again. So students can actually come on campus and meet with our director of admissions and uh, find out firsthand about our program. In my role as the assistant dean for diversity, inclusion, and equity affairs, I can do one-on-one -on -one, uh, meetings with candidates to find out more details about our school. But our program is mission-minded. Uh, I mean, our, the mission of our program is primary care. And we understand that not every candidate is going to work in primary care or serve underserved communities. And that's okay, we don't mandate that, but we do have a primary care focus for our program. And we, our didactic session is, um, our didactic curriculum is focused on primary care. We have a lot of emphasis on social determinants of health. In our clinical rotations, our students have a eight week uh, primary care preceptorship. In addition to the required clinical rotations, they actually spend eight weeks doing primary care at the end of uh, their clinical year. And in that eight week primary care preceptorship, our students are trained to do a community needs assessment to identify resources within the community that are both positive and identify resources that are missing within the community. And we think that this is really important to train providers to actually understand the assets 
what's present in the community that you're serving in and what's not so that you can be able to make the appropriate referrals and identify the appropriate resources for your patients to be compliant and to improve health outcomes of individuals in the communities in which they're going to be practicing. I could not agree more. I think the the reality is we make these assumptions about our students that they they understand these concepts of like food deserts and uh, lack of green space in communities and, and these public health detriments to communities that are not afforded opportunities like some of the more affluent communities are or don't have the resources to advocate against the factory being built in their community instead of in a, in a different part of the, the area. And so what, what's always amazing to me is to watch these students go out. They do historically what they've done is a video, you know, like a, a, they put together a little uh, short movie docu, docu-series uh, about certain communities in the Los Angeles County area and, and they identify those gaps and they just come back so empowered to understand that telling somebody they need to eat better doesn't work in certain communities when they don't have transportation and they and they don't have a grocery store in a walking distance of their home that provides any healthy options and when they and they walk in the store and the first thing they see are all these juices that are not good for us that are 50 cents a bottle and then to get something healthy it's five dollars a bottle right so and I'm excited to hear you say that. That's great. Yeah, in our primary care preceptorship, the students have eight weeks there. And in those eight weeks, they have to do a photo voice. They have to go into the community and take pictures uh, of grocery stores. And they have to actually identify uh, what schools, what educational resources are in their community, what parks and recreations or facilities are in their community. Um, so that when they're making recommendations to eat and to exercise, uh, and they have to identify what community support resources are in their community for senior recreation centers or for veterans or for LGBTQ populations. What resources or in that community so that it helps them to be able to know I need a social worker on my right hand. I need to know how I can get uh, food vouchers for my patients. Uh, if I need to contact a social worker to get transportation vouchers for them to get to and from the clinic, it just allows them to have a better understanding of the population that they're caring for. And that really enhances the patient provider relationship when your patient can come in and you can communicate with your patients about the resources and the environment that they live in. And so it is just, I've seen the reflective essays and it's really changed the perspective of students when they've completed this primary care preceptorship and participated in that uh, community needs assessment. It reminds me of that indigenous proverb that you need to walk a mile in my moccasins to understand my journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the future of the profession. A couple podcasts ago, we were talking to Tony Miller about the doctorate, and I did get some feedback from our community, and I and it was really, really welcome feedback about uh, making assumptions. You know, as a white male, I come from a place of privilege, and um, you know, I, I'm always as a director looking for that next thing that I should be preparing the program for. And clearly the doctorate is out there. It's it's a conversation right now. It's a postgraduate doctorate with a roughly, what, eight schools in the country. But there was a push a couple years ago with PAEA to make the doctorate accessible to accreditation for a entry-level degree, and it was shut down. The 
the big concern when we moved from a bachelor's to a master's was it was going to impact diversity in a negative fashion. And that's been an argument that many have articulated, including myself, uh, at the national meeting a couple years ago about going to the doctorate. But the observation I made on that podcast was related to other professional degrees that have a doctorate and watching, again, this is not a scientific study. I'm just watching these ends of one on Twitter when they get accepted to a psychology degree or medical school or dentistry or law or a PhD program, the kind of of excitement in the community and in the families for these underrepresented minority students. It seems really palpable online on social media. And I've often wondered if the lack of a doctorate was hurting us, just out, you know, just out of curiosity. And also, does the title hurt us? Is there a this concept of physician assistant? Does that hurt us? And obviously, we know the House of Delegates has moved to change the name to associate, but I'd love your perspective from your background. And I know you've done research in these areas for your doctorate. And what's your take on the pros and cons of a doctorate? Well, I think that, as you stated, that you've mentioned in the past that you think a doctor degree may in fact um, impact diversity. I actually do think that each level that each time we raise the bar, we have to actually think about what are the unintentional consequences of raising the bar. If we're sitting here now with approximately 14% diversity for our profession. And we have roughly, if you look at NCCPA, there's about 116,000 certified PAs. And we're looking at only 14% of those are of diverse backgrounds collectively, holistically, of all diversity at a master's level. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to to predict that if we if we're not educating students at a master's level from diverse backgrounds, and there's a financial burden that of getting an undergraduate degree to come into graduate school at a master's level, if we're not going to offer finances to support this, if we're not going to create resources that are available to assist these students, how in the world are we going to narrow that gap and achieve diversity, move into a doctoral degree? That gap is only going to widen. And when, when we talk about representation, how many of those 14% currently individuals of color have a doctor degree? I would, that would, I would be interested in knowing that. And when you look at representation and being able to parallel, we are only going to see, again, a wider gap that don't have a doctor degree right now. If you ask, if I would be interested to know how many of the 14% of certified PAs are currently educated with a doctor degree. It, there, it, there aren't many. I mean, not it, many. Many years, a few years ago. Well, this is 2010. There were about 25 PAs in education that had a doctorate. I suspect. And that how many of those were of color? Probably less than five. Yeah. Right. 
But but the doctor has become much more accessible in terms of the DMSC, the DHSC. You know, back then we were talking about the EDD and the PhD. So and my guess is that that number has multiplied quite a bit. But I think I think what I hear you saying is we need more data. Well, I mean, and I'm not opposed to having an optional doctor degree. I'm opposed to having it as an entry level. Sure. So just like I got a bachelor's degree because it was a bachelor's degree at the time and I chose to go and get a master's degree and then I chose to pursue and get a doctor's degree. I honestly think our entry level should remain at a master's degree. If individuals choose to get a doctor's degree, then it's their choice. They should be allowed to do so. When you look at loan parity in funding PA school, our, our PA students don't have the same leverage of getting loans to even fund education as some of these other professions. It's true. So when our profession looks at doing what other professions do, other professions have access to additional funds that the PA profession does not. We're advocating trying to get loan parity or funding parity for our students. That's something that all, I think, AAPA and all of us as PA educators should be advocating for. Let's create resources for our students to be able to access loans and get money to get educated, even at a master's level. There's a gap there that we have that we're not addressing as a profession so you have a funding gap and then you want to raise the bar for entry level why to compete with our colleagues we we have a niche we could be going i'm gonna go back into primary care and underserved communities we can be a catalyst for addressing these particular populations in need and then said, going back to our baseline as to why we became a profession as a whole, and we can be filling those gaps because other professions aren't filling those gaps. We can create our own niche and fill that gap and be known as the healthcare professionals that care about underserved communities, that care about primary care, that are making the difference across the country in these populations. But instead, we are chasing, we're not first on the block here. So we're the followers. We're not the leaders. We're not being proactive. We're being reactive. Other people have a doctor degree, so let's get a doctor degree. But what's the adverse outcomes of us chasing these other professions and trying to be like everybody else? I have no concerns at all about a postgraduate doctoral degree being an option for individuals. I actually support it as an option. I'm just against it at an entry level. For example, my daughter, Corinthia Gittry, is a PA. She's been a practicing PA since 2016, and she's currently uh, completing her doctorate degree at um, A.T. Steele University. And so again, that's by choice is not mandated for her. She wants to extend her her career and I completely support that. And I think that should be the way that our PA program goes. And, and what was her motivation to seek an advanced degree like that? She wanted to continue to move up in leadership within her profession. Um, at the VA hospital. Um, The VA hospital in Dallas uh, has a lot of nurse practitioners in leadership. And so she wanted to continue on that leadership track. So she chose to pursue that doctor degree, which is the argument that so many of the other PAs I've heard um, uh, state that um, 
in their clinical practice, they want to continue along their trajectory and continue on along their professional career. So this will advance her career. And she chose that as an option to do so. Yeah, I think that's great. I, that's I've often looked at how nursing has done such an incredible job of of recruiting people with diverse pathways, people that know they want to go into research, know they want to go into leadership, know they want to go into the government business, know they want to work in the industry. And uh, uh, those postgraduate degrees that we currently starting to see crop up with PA schools give those kind of opportunities. I'm just, I agree, I'm not in favor of a clinical doctorate, but I'm definitely in favor of that. How about the title physician assistant? Do you think that has been an impediment to our diversity? I don't think that the title is an impediment to diversity. I think, you know, when you're in practice, you're still going to refer to yourself as a PA. Yeah. So the re- the real impediment to diversity continues to be systemic racism, implicit bias, opportunities. Yeah, I think the real impediment to diversity is our admissions committees. Mm-hmm. I think the real impediment to diversity is our program. Um, you, you look at programs, missions, you look at uh, the admissions committees, you look at the culture within our programs. We have to change internally. We can't put this off on anybody else. PAs are the ones that are admitting students into our program. PAs are the ones that are educating and graduating and um, it falls back on us. It doesn't fall on anybody else. It falls back. We have the responsibility. We have full responsibility of the demographics of what our profession looks like. Well, thank you so much for your time today and congratulations on what has been just a stellar career so far. And I've just always been so impressed by UT Southwestern and the work that you all are doing down there in Dallas. And I wish you and your colleagues the very best in the future. Thank you so much. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Carolyn Bradley Gibbery, for her time and insights on the PA profession. It's been an honor to speak with her as we learned about some of the challenging issues for our country and profession through the lived experiences of a leader in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Bill Kolhap. Dr. Kolhap has been a physician assistant for more than 40 years, and he is a professor emeritus of PA studies at Quinnipiac University. He's also been a national leader for the AAPA, NCCPA, PAEA, and the PA History Society, to name a few. He is also the 2020 recipient of the PAEA Lifetime Achievement Award and a good friend to both Stephanie and I from our board service together. We speak with Dr. Kolhep about the Quinnipiac University PA program and about the challenges facing our profession from his vast experiences in leadership. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.